0: You know, one of the things that I learned back in theater, back when I actually used to perform, was that you know you care if you're nervous before a piece. And I just find it funny, because to this day, whenever I sit down in front of this camera and get going and hit record and turn off the monitor and you know, all the lighting setup and all that, I just get nervous every single time. So Star Trek Three. this is a weird situation. We're going to take a look at the mindset of people for a moment. I, I know, bear with me. In my experience, there are three ways to look at star trek's overall uh, it, it, look at opinions on Star Trek um, as far as people who who perceive it there's the general populace in which case the odds suck, the evens are good, and you know there's other things i 'll talk about that, but that 'll wait until the next video and if, and, and so that 's pretty much it you know that 's pretty much all the thought gut that goes into it then there's the populace of science fiction fans in general which tends to be a little more focused. Most people who are fans of science fiction in general tend to enjoy most of the Star Trek films and tend to have a slightly varied opinion, but overall tend to agree with the odds and evens rule for the most part. And then there's Star Trek fans. Whether they're Trekkers or Trekkies, and yes, there is a distinction between the two, although it is a distinction purely of uh, designation rather than anything else. There are no rules among Star Trek fans none <laughs> I know this sounds like i I'm repeating something sci-fi debris said but this is still true in my case I have heard people defend threshold now ever since I started doing those Voyager ruminations I have heard people defend threshold people who actually enjoyed threshold now I'm not saying those people are wrong because that's not really the point of this. In fact, I actually think this is really awesome, as weird as that sounds. Because it speaks to how wonderful Star Trek really is in many ways. Because it appeals to such a wide variety of people for such a wide diff- ver- such a wide variety of reasons. It's actually the same exact thing that's true with Star Wars. There are a huge variety of people who like Star Wars for completely different reasons. The fact that Threshold, which in my opinion is among the worst Star Trek pieces, you know, show or movies ever at the very least it's tied up there in like the top three the fact that people out there who like star trek like threshold that's awesome that there's that much of a, of a variance in the way that we think and yet we still find this coalesced uh shared enjoyment and i just realized my my, my lighting is off Oh my god, I totally forgot I had the second monitor going. I'm, I'm sorry, I spent like 10 minutes trying to figure out why my lighting was off, because I have a very specific lighting setup. I, I hope that just didn't ruin the green. If you're, you know what, I'm going to check this real quick. Checking the green screen. How are we doing? Does that fix anything? Ah, okay, we're good, we're good. Sorry about that. Sorry about the delay. Okay. So I love that. I love that variety of opinion, that we can all find this common enjoyment in something, even if we completely disagree on it. I mentioned this because it's hard to talk about general consensus when it comes to Star Trek. Because while there is a general consensus, it's a consensus in my experience, and I've been a Star Trek for fan for in the decades range here, the largest bit of consensus you can have among Star Trek fans is usually in like the 30 percentile with the other, you know, 70% of people all having completely different opinions from each other if you follow. That being said, most people do agree, like I said back in the first movie, odds are worse than the evens. Even if they don't suck, and by the way, that is my opinion. I don't think the odds suck, with an exception we'll get to later. Um, I think the odds are less quality than the evens. However, in my mind, I usually remember Search of Sprock much worse than I did when I rewatched it. And yet, when I rewatched it, I found myself enjoying it much more than I should have. There's a lot of uh, nuance to the portrayal of Krug. And some of the things, one of the themes of the film, which honestly I don't even think was intended to be a theme of the film, yet was developed anyways, thanks in part to Nimoy and to the uh, the actors involved that arose from it. And that helps uh, really make the piece stand out in many ways. But I mention this whole thing because... I have heard one individual ever tell me that they think Star Trek Three is the best of the Star Trek films. I find that perspective fascinating, no pun intended, because for me, while this one is of lesser quality to the evens, and it is still, if I was to rate them, it would be like, you know, Nemesis down here, uh, and then probably Into Darkness, and then 5, and then, uh, let me think about that for a moment, then 9, then 7, then 1, then 3. So of the odds down here, 3 is the one at the top slot. And that's even before I rewatched it. After rewatching it, this is, uh, it hasn't moved any because I'm pretty sure the evens are still better. But it's still a really enjoyable, really good film. It just has some very significant flaws to it. I'm sorry, I'm just bringing this all up because I find this entire concept fascinating. That's really all I wanted to do. I wanted to share the fact that it's so awesome that we can all share love of this stuff while still completely disagreeing about it. It's the Mass Effect ideal, if you will. So Nimoy came back to this movie. Now, for those of you not aware, Star Trek 2 totally changed Nimoy's mind about Star Trek. And I mean this sincerely. If you paid attention in the day, and if you pay attention to his memoirs, and, and I am Spock, I am not Spock, all that fun stuff, Nimoy at the time was very anti-Star Trek, and it's easy to see why. He felt like he was being pigeonholed into a role he didn't really enjoy anymore, and he felt like the people who were in charge of designing and, and constructing that role were basically... Um, how do I put this? We're corporate hacks. I'm just going to put it that way. He he actually, Nimoy has always, even when he was younger, been the kind of person who uh, believes in artistic integrity. Now I know that phrase is synonymous with nowadays, but I'm. It, it's worth noting artistic integrity is a genuine phrase which has genuine meaning behind it. And I'm actually with Nimoy on this, in all honesty. If someone came to me and offered me a million dollars to turn into an EA shill, well I'd take it because that way I could use that money to a better good than my show can. But even ignoring that, the point is I'd hate every moment of it, right? Because it's raw, basically, to to be that kind of thing, to be a corporate shill, to basically turn it from a work of art into a processed work of a uh, a manufactory. See, that's the difference. Nimoy felt Star Trek was turning into the latter, and it was. Star Trek, the motion picture, and all of the bullcrap. And I, I remember, I, I said I wasn't going to talk about it, but the mess that went into the motion picture and, and making it pretty much reaffirmed that in Nimoy's mind, that, yeah, Star Trek was gone. He was dragged back to Star Trek II. Then he performed in it. And it completely changed his mind on the matter. It felt so much like the artistic, wonderful, emotional, powerful... It felt like the character he had invested himself in was actually coming to life again. And that's really the important part right there. This is why one of the reasons I liked Leonard Nimoy, even back in the day, even when he was a little... uh, He hadn't really gained the wisdom that age would eventually make him into an incredibly awesome guy. Nimoy always really threw himself into his characters. He invested himself into his performances uh, there are a few he didn't obviously because i mean the paycheck is still a paycheck and we all admit this every now and then you just got to work at mcdonald's for a while but nimoy liked to really care about how he performed in most of his works um, and this shows in a lot of his more uh, modern works and, and of course most people can relate to spock uh, but the way he portrayed Master Xehanort over in the Kingdom Hearts series. He was documented as being very invested in that character and very much caring about his perspective, his mindset. It is debatable that some of the subtleties and nuances that exist in that character are owed to Nimoy throwing himself into the role. But I digress. The point is, Star Trek II allowed him to do that. Allowed him to really care about his character and put forth an amazing performance in a wonderful piece. And from this moment on, Nimoy had basically... It, it, just about every Star Trek actor has like a turning point, I've noticed. When they go from being basically... This is only applies to the original cast. When they go from basically being resentful of the series to actually embracing it. Um, it took a while for Walter Koenig to reach that point. I think he was one of the last ones. It actually took Shatner a while, too. Quite some time until after Star Trek V, to give you an idea of the range of time here. But Nimoy's was right here at two. So that leads us to three. Nimoy wanted to come back for three. This is important. I mentioned this back in two. Nimoy's death was not planned to be undone. They allowed the, they left the door open. They did the thread hanging. You know, the thread was dangling, but that's it. So they were like, okay, we want to bring Nimoy back. And Nimoy said, I will come back on one condition. Nimoy wanted to direct. Now, <laughs> the actor wanting to direct is such a common thing that it's actually kind of a trope at this point in time hell i would even call it a a farce thing at this point you know a point of comedy oh yeah but what i really want to do is direct but a lot of actors do have really great potential as directors and in fact in my opinion some actors are better act uh, directors than actors it is worth noting that one of the better directors of the modern era in my opinion is jonathan frakes who is an amazing director and manages to pull some incredible performances out of his people if he actually had gotten the slot to direct Star Trek Three, the new Star Trek Three, I would have watched that opening midnight just because Frakes is directing it. Okay, just to give you an idea of how much uh, respect I have for the man's directing opinion. So I mention this because Nimoy did actually prove to be a very good director, all things considered. But this was effectively his first real outing in directing. Not his not his first uh, outing period, but his first big outing. His first, okay, here you go. Now let me talk about one other thing that's important with this regard, okay? Okay. Nimoy's, Nimoy was shackled when it, came, when it came to this film. Now, you may not know what I mean by that. Let me use Lord of the Rings to explain this. If you haven't seen the Lord of the Rings the trilogy, what the hell is wrong with you? Go watch it right now. Okay, now that you're done watching that... <laughs> yes, it's that short of a film. You just blink and it's done. Um, especially the Hobbit trilogy. Seriously, though. If Peter Jackson had been shackled when he was doing the Lord of the Rings film, uh, trilogy, we would not have gotten the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I mean, we would have gotten three films that would have been probably acceptable but they would have been nowhere near the incredible masterpiece works of art that they actually are. Now, I know some people disagree with that, and that's fine. I don't want to get into Lord of the Rings here. The point is, Peter Jackson got lucky because he wasn't shackled, but that's the the exception, okay? That's the rarity. Most of the time when a director goes out to do something, even if they're not a brand new director, the studio says, okay, we're going to limit you here, and we're going to limit you here, and we're going to limit you here, and here's your budget, and here's your timetable. Go make it happen. That's why I call it shackling. You, 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 you can still move. You can still move your arms around. You can still flex your fingers. But you're limited, right? You are hampered. You are, you are restrained. You're still on the leash, in other words. Nimoy was on the leash for this film, and it shows. In a lot of ways, this film, and there's no nice way to say this, is a long episode. In fact, it actually suffers in the exact same way that Star Trek One does. Both the, both the motion picture and search for Spock feel like drawn-out episodes, now, in this case, it's mostly due to the fact that the writer, um... His name I suddenly can't think of. Bennett? Harv Bennett? Hang on. I've got so many notes, you have no idea. Uh, Like I said, yeah, Harv, Harv Bennett, I was right. Harv Bennett, uh, wrote this script, more or less, by himself. That's one of the reasons for this. And the other reason is most commonly accepted that Nimoy was shackled. So if it wasn't for those two facts, I think we would have gotten a much better search of Spock than we did. Keeping in mind, I still like this film. The other thing worth noting here is that the script underwent a very severe change very early on. Now, okay, I mentioned Harv Bennett. I don't want to bash the man, because Harve Bennett does some good work. He's really good at pulling out uh, decent uh, dialogue and good interactions and good exposition. He- he's also... He also does some of the problem is while Harve Bennett gets credit for writing Star Trek II, he didn't. Nicholas Meyer wrote Star Trek II. Nicholas Meyer wrote that original screenplay, the untouched screenplay. Remember, I talked about that for forever. Harve Bennett then went in and added lines to that screenplay. Now that combination worked brilliantly. And as I've often said, you know, there's no shame in being good at working in a group. But Harve Bennett was alone with this one, with the only one modifying his script being Nimoy, who also had no real experience with that kind of thing. So. The fact that it's a long episode makes sense, because this is the kind of thing you would expect from this sort of thing. You know, okay, we need to make a Star Trek movie. You're going to approach it from that mindset, because Star Trek has always been a show. I mean, this all makes sense. It's understandable. It's just a pity. But let's talk about that original script. In the original script, it was going to be the Romulans who were coming after the Genesis device, not the Klingons, And the Enterprise was not going to be destroyed. (laughs) Spoiler alert, by the way. And the Vulcans were actually going to secede from the Federation, because they had been kept in the dark about the Genesis device, and they felt the mere existence of such a device was aberrant to the very nature of the Federation, and that was unpleasant. And there was going to be this whole buildup to basically what was effectively a Civil War scenario, and it was going to be pretty cool, actually. Obviously, we didn't get that. Although some of those ideas would be recycled back into the show many years later, and then immediately dumped again. I know you're not going to remember this, and you probably don't... If you're watching this video, uh, statistically speaking, you're only about 50% likely to actually watch my episodic reviews that I do on Tuesdays. But when I get to Deep Space Nine, keep this in mind for the episodes Homefront and Paradise Lost. This is where that seed was planted, all the way back here. So... A lot of things, actually, originally, uh, that, that became hallmarks of the series and and what carry forward into TNG, actually started here. And I will give credit where credit is due. They did a lot of innovative work. This is where the space dot comes from. This is our first look at the Excelsior. Now, that may not sound impressive, but I want to remind you of something. We have seen the Constitution class in the Enterprise and other ships, which are also Constitutions, because all the ships were Constitution class in the original series. Uh, then we saw the Miranda class, that was the Reliant back in 2. And we will see an Oberth in this uh, episode, the Grissom. The USS Grissom. I had to think about that. I know the class of the ship better than I know the name of the ship. And then we see the Excelsior, Excelsior class in this thing. Now, that may not sound like a big deal, but that's two new Starfleet ships introduced in this movie, making it the uh, third and fourth Star Trek Starfleet ships basically ever introduced. This actually began kind of the developing theme of of starfleet's uh ship style its overall aesthetic approach yes i know they had done those design documents all the way back in the original series and yes i even know someone who actually has all of that uh all of that stuff all the actual physical diagrams and schematics and whatnot but that never actually made it to print the point is the people who actually went into print and the people who started designing stuff for the tng era looked to this movie and the originations of the ideas that were put forth in this movie to develop what eventually became known as the Starfleet aesthetic became, with, with regards to ship design. An aesthetic would not, which would not actually change, arguably, ever, but it, the real time it changed is when Deep Space Nine came out. I don't know why I've got Deep Space Nine on the brain today. I can't wait to watch that show, that's why. <sighs> I need to just finish Voyager. I'm, I'm, okay, here's the rest of the episodes in one thing. <clears throat> no, I'm kidding. So, they also introduced the Burrell, in this episode. Now, I'm going to you can track your geekdom of Star Trek based on if you actually know what I'm talking about, especially if you only know what a Burrell is if you've played Star Trek online. I'm referring to the Klingon Bird of Prey. This is the original, the first this is the first time we've ever seen the Bird of Prey, but it's a style that would become so iconic that it basically defined the style of the Klingon ships henceforth in the same exact way the Excelsior did. So again, kind of starting, you know, planting the seeds here for Event Financial Klingon Designs uh, structure. We also see the Earth Space Dock, a shot that will, that is actually really cool, in all honesty, great graphics, and will be used many other times in the future. In fact, that's actually the exact same graphic shot that is used in TNG several times, just with the Enterprise D in place of the Enterprise, the, the Enterprise. Um, so, because it was just that good, well done of a shot, and of course that became that that again started the the design style for most of the Earth, uh, the excuse me, the Starfleet and Federation ships, space docks, etc. From henceforth, again, this is all just some setting building, but that's I want to mention this because Star Trek Three did a lot of setting building, which is which is not unique to it. Uh, Star Trek One did a lot of that. Star Trek Two did some of that as well. So this is good stuff overall. I also want to give really really uh, credits to a lot of the way the movie was constructed. A couple of things that were unusual about it. First of all, this was a direct sequel to Star Trek II. It literally starts, like, a couple of weeks, if days. We don't have an exact amount, but it's very, very, very shortly after Star Trek II ended. It's not. It cannot possibly be a month out. So we've got anywhere from a day to a month, somewhere in that range after Star Trek II. That was really unusual for this period of time, movie-wise. Uh, it would become more common later after this point in time, but you get the overall point. The second thing that's interesting is... I want to give you guys a bit of perspective, like I did back in Star Trek II with regard to Spock's death, spoiler alert. We didn't know if Spock would be coming back in this film. Now, I know what you're saying. Well, it's called The Search for Spock. Yeah. Watch the opening credits sometime. They do something very subtle but very deliberate that, that did not pass any of our attention, and that was the fact that it, it's like, you know, starring William Shatner. And then there's a pause where Nimoy's name would normally appear, where it always has appeared for the last however many years at this point. And then after the pause, then DeForest Kelly's name picked up. And we're all like, Ugh. And Spock, finally, uh, Nimoy finally did get credit as director, but not acting, even though he did actually act in this role. In fact, more than once, he actually played the voice of the Excelsior Computer, among other little tidbits he did in this. So a lot of us had this very strong impression that we would not actually get our Spock back. And this was something that had gained a lot of momentum in the Star Trek community, both for and against. It was actually something of heated debate, and I actually distinctly recall having several rather long discussions about would it be better if we got a new Spock, or if, you know, Leonard Nimoy returned as our Spock. And of course there was also a, a in-between idea there, which Leonard Nimoy could portray Spock, but it would be a new Spock, a reset Spock, if you will. I'll talk about that... Uh, at the end of the video, because that's my very last point. So, just thought I'd point that out. A lot of people went into this really not sure what was going to come out of it. So, let's talk about Savic. Now, Christy Alley did a very good job of her p- portrayal back in Star Trek II, and everyone was happy with it. Uh, the fans, the director, the writers, everyone, was, uh, Nimoy himself, they wanted to get her back for Star Trek III. Christy Alley herself said, hell yes, I'm ready to come back. Everything looked wonderful. For those of you who are not movie geeks, uh, let me clue you in on something. There's a barrier that exists between movie makers and actors that most people don't know exists or most people don't acknowledge exists. It's called agents. Those agents have more power over what an actor does and why than most people would think sometimes an agent will basically prevent an actor from getting a role sometimes an agent will force an actor into getting a role because those agents do actually have a varying amount of legal uh power for like a better way to put it over what the actor actually does in their career the reason those agents exist is logical because that way the actors can focus on you know acting and not have to worry about contracts and budgets and all that fun stuff but sometimes it tends to work out badly See, Christy Alley's agent turned over to 3 and said, I want a crap ton of money for her. Obviously, he didn't say I want, but we want. She wants a crap ton of money. Now, there was actually a huge kerfuffle about this relative for the time. It was actually rather small. Nowadays, you'd see people being like, oh, my God. Um, But a lot of money was being demanded for her. And as I will be talking about several, several times, Star Trek 3 was on a very tight budget. So... (laughs) <laughs> despite the success of star trek i mean star trek 3 had a bigger budget than star trek 2 star trek 2 had a shoestring budget but star trek 3 still had a fairly small budget especially for the time and so they looked at that and they said we literally can't we are physically incapable of hiring christie back at that budget so they dropped it and nimoy and uh, oh, i forgot his name again harv bennett and and most of the actors were like oh that sucks that we can't get christie back now, meanwhile, on Christy Alley's side, she's like, well, I, you know, I wanted more money because I did a good job and I'm a bigger actor now. And that made sense. She's a bigger name. She demands a bigger performance. Duh. And she didn't get a response back. Now, the way the game is usually played is I offer you this and, you know, I demand this and you come back and say, I can't do that. I'll do less than this. And we ha- haggle and barter. Nobody came back with the counteroffer. They just, they just received this demand for way too much money and said, nope. Now it's understandable why they were looking at the situation like, okay, like this is what we can afford. This is what she's demanding. So even if we go down to like here, that's still more than we can afford. So we're not even going to try. It's understandable, but Christy Alley herself was reported as being very disappointed about the fact that she didn't get to reprise her role, especially since she did actually have a fairly major role, Salvek did, I should say, in this film. So they got someone new. Now their second pick was a woman, I forgot to look up her name, but you'll be seeing her again in about uh, three movies now but uh, she was unavailable for uh, scheduling conflicts, so they got their third pick, which is the woman who actually played Savic in this film. Does a good job of it, I might add. Doesn't uh, I, I'm not saying she does worse than Christy Alley, or indeed better. They, they they both have a very different portrayal of it. Part of that is because of the direction. Uh Christy Alley was always directed to play a half Romulan, half Vulcan, and I'm phrasing it that way. Uh, the woman in this film whose name I actually can't remember, I really should have written it down, the woman who plays Savic in this film was directed to play a Vulcan, and you can kind of see the difference there, and there's also some different subtleties in the performance uh, that kind of got cut, which I'll be talking about at the end of this film and in Star Trek 4. I'll talk, you know, we'll get to that, suffice it to say it's a bit of a shame because Christy Alley would never return, uh, I'll talk about that when we get to Star Trek VI, Krug, I actually have a few things to talk about, Lord Krug, who is played by Christopher Lloyd who you may remember from everything. <laughs> Sorry for recycling the joke, but it's true. Christopher Lloyd has been in so many stuff, and I've always really enjoyed him. I, I make no no hiding of the fact that I love Christopher Lloyd as an actor, and he is among my favorites. I mention this because he himself has written, and, and, and this is hilarious because if you look at his performance, you're like, wow, that's very Lloyd, you know, very over the top. Lloyd himself went on record as saying that he felt very restrained when he was portraying this role. He also does a few little subtle touches, which I really like and helped flush the character out. I'll be talking about those as we go. Nevertheless, I do think Lloyd was a good choice for this. James Horner came back to do the music again. A lot of people came back from 2 to do the music again, or the <laughs> music to do their various roles in the movie. So most of the crew was the same crew from 2. Different director, different writing staff. Um... I guess that's all I have as far as behind-the-scenes stuff, except for a few other things, so let's move on. I have a few questions, like, right at the beginning, okay? How did these random guys, who we never have any idea who or what they are, get the information on the Genesis device, detailed information on it? I'm not going to call that a plot hole. It's just something that's always kind of niggled the back of my brain. This is something that should be oh what's the word ultra classified yeah there we go and most people spock spock himself back in star trek 2 had never even heard of genesis never even heard it mentioned until kirk brought it up and the only reason kirk had it was again remember high-ranking fleet admiral okay so not a literal fleet admiral an admiral of the fleet and so why is it that these random yahoos managed to find this information on Genesis? Such detailed information. Second question, why does Krug kill his lover? Uh, for those of you not aware, the woman, Velithria uh, or something like that, uh, was actually Krug's lover, partner, whatever you want to call her, who he kills for what effectively is no reason, especially since he then shares information about Genesis with two of his crew. Whatever, moving on. Um, I do like the little subtle note about automated docking. It's important for three big reasons. Well, three little reasons, really. One, it's foreshadowing. We'll get there. Two, it makes sense. Because remember, this is a ship that is very badly damaged and also leads into point three. Given the fact that they've just lost like half their crew because all those recruits were reassigned and taken off the ship... Probably to deal with the stress and trauma of having gone out on a training cruise and then gone into battle. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So it makes sense that they had automated docking. I just like that. It's a nice little touch. There's a lot of good little touches in this one. So then we have the Excelsior. The Excelsior is a nice ship. Not my style, admittedly. If I had a choice of all the ships and I had to stick with just Starfleet ships... And I was picking purely aesthetically speaking excelsior would not be in my top five i admit that but it's a well-designed ship I already talked about its world building aspects it will still be in use 80 years from now because they will still use excelsior class ships by the time ds9 rolls around which actually puts it at like the 87 year range but you get the point um i mentioned the excelsior though because two big points number one they had a note in the original script there's several things that were cut from the script which i feel adds to it and it's a shame that You know, you have to hear that from me or from other behind-the-scenes sources. Sulu was originally supposed to be captain of the Excelsior basically by now. They they hint this several times, and it's fairly well established that the Excelsior is basically about ready to launch for the first time ever. Brand new ship, brand new class. You know, it's the, it's the, uh... I can't think of the name. There's a name for the, the ship that is the first ship of a class, and I can't think of it. Anyways, so the Excelsior of the Excelsior class, and it's usually tradition to name the first ship of a class after the class, hence the nomenclature there. Anyways, the Excelsior is about ready to finally do its first test, its first launch, like now. Sulu was supposed to be the captain of that ship. The reason he is not is because he got caught up in the Genesis affair, and the events of that situation were heavily classified, and he was not available for the promotion as a result of, of both of these facts. Just a nice little subtle t- t- hint in there. I mention it especially because this would, of course, be followed up in Star Trek VI and beyond, where Sulu became the captain of the Excelsior and did a great job of it, I might add. Um, Styles is the name of the captain of the Excelsior, which brings me to my next point. I'm going to mention this now, but this will come up several times. Whew. I'm going to ask a question that I know the answer to. Why is Starfleet portrayed as incompetent, dickish, or elitist obstructionist, throughout the course of this movie. I almost said episode. Throughout the course of this movie. Now, again, I know the answer. It's because Krug may be the villain, but the antagonist is Starfleet. They're the ones actually serving as the first and second act uh, obstacles for the crew to overcome. And as obstacles, they need to be made obstacles in some way. And again, Harv Bennett is a good writer, but he is not... He, he works better in a group, and I feel like, I mean, you know... Yeah, right, like Nicholas Meyer would come back to write another Star Trek film. I mean, come on, right? But if he had come back to write this along with Harve Bennett, I feel we would have gotten a much more gray situation. Imagine a Starfleet that isn't incompetent, aren't dicks, aren't obstructionist, and aren't elitist pricks who are just doing their job and honestly, sincerely trying to do the best they can to conceal, contain and conceal this, uh, this entire Genesis situation, which I'll be talking about in a bit, by the way. And... You know Kirk and crew are like "No we 've got to leave and, and so Starfleet's like, oh, "No, imagine seeing uh, some of them instead of being like, Haha, You would think some respect would be owed to people who are literally living legends among Starfleet, and yet at no point is that respect showed. Styles himself goes out of his way to look his, down his nose at Kirk and the Enterprise and everyone on board. The c and the treats Kirk like he's an idiot when he talks with him. The gentleman in the transporter room doesn't be- salute or show any kind of anything. He's just, ah, oh, this can't happen. we got to do something about this, you know. And then there's the security guards who, when Admiral Kirk shows up to sh- visit a friend who is unwell, the security guard treats his friend like he's a loony, with total disrespect in his tone and his word choice, and then when Admiral Kirk wants to talk to him, and and says so respectfully, the guard just says curtly, two minutes. Or or however much time he gives him. What the hell? (laughs) Now, I've never been a big believer of the fact that Starfleet is this wonderful, peaceful, amazing place. I'm one of those people who likes the DS9 interpretation of Starfleet, a well-meaning but flawed organization, which has good people and bad people, just like every organization, with some exceptions but i can but it's consistently the the opposite of the well meaning you know it's consistently the opposite of the idealized starfleet throughout this whole thing and being the we're the bad guys starfleet and that's always bothered me and i think that's one of the things that's bothered me most about this film with two other exceptions which i will get to much later is the presentation of them as the bureaucrats basically as the jackasses i mean oh my god the guy who calls sulu tiny keeping in mind keeping in mind Sulu did nothing to provoke that. When I was re-watching this, I was like, oh my god, Sulu literally just said, keeping busy? Just making talk, small talk. Chatting with another security individual. Because remember, Sulu has some security uh, background in addition to his, cat, his his officer track. And the guy stands up to full height and, and says, don't make cracks, Tiny, or however he phrases it. I know he sells them Tiny. Now, we know why they did that from an out-of-character perspective. We know why Stiles is such a stuck-up dick in this film. It's so that when they get their comeuppance, it's much more satisfying. It is worth noting that one of the most memorable sequences in this film, in most people's minds, is the sequence beginning from when they agree to break, uh, break uh, break McCoy out and steal the Enterprise, is the most memorable sequence of the film because it's all these jackasses and assholes and bureaucrats and idiots who are getting their comeuppance, who are, who are basically being, no, no, no. <laughs> and, you, and, and there's that satisfaction of the fact that the plucky old team and, and the good old Enterprise and the ship we love and the crew we love are more than capable of dealing with all these new, elite, shiny, high-minded dicks that we can actually still, you know, succeed in this in spite of their supposed superiority. Why else is the Excelsior taken down so easily and so swiftly? And so humiliatingly? Now, I'm not saying that's inappropriate. And I enjoy that sequence. Don't mistake me. But not for the reasons I just gave. I just I just wanted to talk about that because... And, and that's another thing. I'm sorry. While I'm on the topic, because I've got another note right here. They go to retire the Enterprise. Now, I just mentioned that they'll be using the Excelsior-class ship in 87 years. Now... That may be a weird thought, okay? And I understand, so let me break it down for you. Uh, I want you to picture that in 1938, they come up with a type of ship in the military, which they are using today. I may have my math wrong, forgive me, I just did that in my head just now. (laughs) And I'm not that good at math, in all honesty. But... And so, the Constitution class, which by the way, this is the revamped Constitution, don't forget... um, is going to be retired now the enterprise is going to be retired and and, and you also have to keep this in mind <laughs> first of all the enterprise just had a big refit whether or not you count star trek 1 as, as canon you cannot deny it had the big refit because it has the new look and the new design so bam done part of canon right second point this is a ship that is extremely useful for training scenarios and exercises because a constitution class cruiser has a large crew a crew of 400 plus if memory serves and so that is a great way to get lots of a variety of training for a lot of people in a short amount of time. It is a perfect training vessel. So even if you, for some stupid reason, think a freaking cruiser, by the way, which at this point in time is the second best cruiser in the fleet, and the only reason it's second best is the Excelsior's better. Oh, that's right. You remember the Excelsior, the ship that hasn't actually officially launched yet? They're retiring a ship that is one step off of the best that is also the Enterprise. I just feel like pointing that out again. And, which is also the flagship of the fleet. Uh, actually, it isn't the flagship of the fleet at this point in time, so forgive me. The Excelsior was going to be the new flagship. is isn't yet, but my point is... So, the new ship, they've just... I mean, this is like... This is literally like, I just bought a new computer online, okay? And it hasn't arrived yet. So, I've taken my old computer and thrown it into the dumpster. That's the equivalent of what Starfleet military is doing. Now, granted, speaking as a computer guy um, of many, many, many years, you don't ever throw away old hardware. You can always find a use for it. I still find uses to this day. I, I have a box over there, which is huge. It's actually a tub, of, uh, you know, a big uh, carrying tub, which has old computer parts, which I still find uses for to this day, for myself or for others. Throwing away the Enterprise is just ludicrous. But why do they do it? Well, they have to, because they're the bad guys. This is, this is why this whole sequence bothers me. They're, all the things that happen happen because they have to happen for, the, for servicing the purposes of the, of the story, for providing obstacles for our heroes, not because they make any sense. None of it flows or grows organically or is logical within the setting. It's just all of a sudden, Starfleet's the bad guys, and we've got to stop you here, and blah, blah, blah. Now, let me make something clear. Everything that I've just complained about can be explained away, and it can. It isn't in the movie or in the original script because that wasn't the intent. And that is my main point. The intent here is basically a surface look at the situation. A first encounter, if you will, before we get to the final boss. And that just kind of bothered me because, again, I feel like if this had a second pass and and someone else who who did better uh, screenplay or better uh, editing with regards to the script had gone over it, it would have been more interesting to see a Starfleet, which is none of those things and has no idea how to deal with this situation and is conflicted imagine having a captain styles who has to give the order to fire on the enterprise and he hesitates and that's why enterprise gets away because he can't bring himself to fire on another starfleet ship let alone the 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 legend he can't bring himself to do it he just and then the enterprise warps away and he just closes his eyes like you know imagine how much more dramatic potential that would have had just my thoughts Krug. Krug is interesting. Krug, for those of you who don't know, is the Klingon commander played by Christopher Lloyd. I mention that because I don't actually remember his name being mentioned (laughs) anywhere in the entire film. Uh, They kept calling himself uh, Commander Klingon Vessel. Or My Lord. Krug is interesting because he is simultaneously very evil and yet very smart. He has a degree of subtlety to his performance, and and, and again, I I credit that mostly to Nimoy and to uh, Christopher Lloyd. And he... In many ways, he is a prelude, a prototype, if you will, of uh, of General Chang from uh, Star Trek VI. Much more a samurai than a, a Mongolian warrior or a barbarian or anything like that. Those Klingons have usually been portrayed in, in some works up to now. Yes, I know the original series had some variety to it as well. Just bear with me. So, I find him interesting, though, because on the one hand, he is almost cartoonishly villainous in some cases... And yet he actually isn't. If you really pay attention to it, any time he is being cartoonishly evil, he is doing so in character for the sake of his enemies. A, a very classic uh, technique, actually. Make yourself appear more villainous so the enemy underestimates you and perceives you as a different thing, threat type of threat than what you actually are. Krug shows himself to be very competent and very intelligent throughout this whole work. He is also someone who is basically working from the ground up. He has a Burrell. Okay, a Burrell class bird of prey. It's a dinky 20 man ship with a few, you know, a complement of torpedoes, two disruptor things, a cloaking device, and that's freaking it. The Enterprise could take it out probably in about five seconds in a one on one straight fight. He is working from the ground floor. He has nothing, and yet at, this, at all times in time, he shows that he acknowledges and knows that he has nothing, that he is working with just the bare minimum of what he's got and trying to make things work despite the fact that he doesn't have the resources or, or anything that he actually needs in order to do so. The fact that he accomplishes so much is admittedly mostly up to luck, that was nothing to do with him, but he displays a fairly large amount of cunning in the same process. His, ref- his encounter with Kirk, when he, when he uh, talks to him, both in, in person and on, on the ship, really helped highlight that. The way he deals with all the situations, like the fact that he acknowledges... He didn't want to destroy the Grissom, for example. Now, I mention this because this is really important. The destruction of the Grissom, which I'll talk about in a minute, is something that is a huge misstep for his plans... And he knows that. He acknowledges that. He did not want to destroy the Grissom. He wanted to damage it and then board it and then capture some people to actually interrogate. Because remember, he's not stupid evil. He's just evil. He wanted to drag them on board and interrogate them, probably through torture, in order to get information on Genesis and, of course, dig through their computer bays, etc. Destroying them is the kind of thing Darth Malak would have done. If he had done it deliberately. But no, he gets so pissed off that they destroyed it that he shoots the guy who did it. Now that may seem stupid evil, but it's not. That actually makes tons of sense. He had one chance, from his perspective, to get Genesis. One chance. to He had one little opening. And he sneaks in, and he gets there, and he uncloaks, and it's like, Yes! Take our chance! And then he, in dis- his stupid gunner, destroys his only opportunity to make this. He was pissed. And Lloyd portrays it perfectly. Lloyd's, and when he turns to his second, he says, Say the wrong thing! I forget how he said it, but you know, Say the wrong thing! Make a mistake! Literally just begging him to do something so he had an excuse to shoot him because he was that pissed off because he just lost Genesis, and the guy says, no, no, we haven't lost Genesis, we've got this. I see. And he's very quick at thinking on his feet. Krug, in my opinion, if he had had a little more time being fleshed out, and they had a little less of a time and budget manacle throughout the course of making this movie, would have been one of the greatest Star Trek villains we've ever seen, because in many ways, he is just like Khan was. He is an anti-Kirk. He has confidence in his crew, confidence in his ship, and a great fit capacity to think on his feet. The reason he portrays the level of threat he does throughout this course of this thing is because of that talent. Otherwise, he would have been brushed aside as another villain of the week. (sighs) Captain Esteban, who is the captain of the Grissom, the Oberth-class ship. Now, Captain... uh, Remember I mentioned back in Star Trek uh, the the wonderful, wonderful gentleman who played... The captain, whose his name I can't think of, of the, Marant- uh, of, of the Reliant, the original captain. Um, how I mentioned how awesome it is that he portrays a competent, well-meaning, you know, good good officer, in other words. And how I mentioned that was unusual because in so much of Star Trek, captains come across as not competent or not good. Exhibit A, Captain Esteban, an idiot who is a wuss who is so cautious as to the point of literally trying to cover his own ass more than, I don't know, doing anything else whatsoever. I wanted to smack the guy half the time I saw him. But again, this makes sense with the portrayal of Starfleet as the first and second act antagonist. He is the antagonist for Savik and for David. Think about how long it took them to convince him just to let them beam down. Just to investigate a life form, an animal-based life form, on a planet that should have none. A huge anomaly and something that should be investigated immediately. And they had to convince him of that. Yes, there's risks, but guess what? You're in space on an incredibly dangerous and highly classified, I feel like pointing out, mission around a planet that is a warped Frankenstein of nature and shouldn't even exist. Yes, there's going to be freaking risks. Now beam your ass down there, you jackass. God, I wanted to smack that guy. No, I don't want him to die. In fact, that was horrible. Um, that he and his crew were destroyed, but... Let's talk about it. I've I've mentioned it twice. Let's talk about it. Where's my notes? I I scrolled down a little bit here. Scrolled down. God, I use computers too much. Um, let's talk about... God, it's on, like, the second page, isn't it? Yeah, here it is. The Oberth. Uh, you know what? Let's go ahead and wait for that. We'll wait till we get there. We'll wait till we get there. I'm sorry. Forgive me. So let's talk about Mark Leonard, Okay. Mark Leonard portrays Spock's father in this, Sarek. He does a great job of it. He did a great job of it back in the original series. He will do a great job of it in everything from this point up until Unification and Star Trek VI. Uh, his last performance in the role, if I'm not mistaken. He is, in my opinion, one of the two greatest actors to ever portray a Vulcan, alongside Tim Russ. And I've said this many, many times, and I stand by this point. I mention this because some people can portray a Vulcan as emotionless. Some people can portray a Vulcan as bored and you know and there's other ways and and there's a lot of reasons why some people in my opinion just don't do well uh in in portrayals of Vulcans and I think it actually helps to come down to directors as well but Sarek is just that perfect blend of exactly what a Vulcan is he is not emotionless Vulcan emotions are very strong and I keep reminding you guys of this because I want to hammer this point in they keep them controlled they are not robots they're people who are very disciplined and that is a fine shading different from for example the way data is portrayed over in TNG which I do think uh Brent Spiner really nailed the truly emotionless without making him boring flavor of data at least Past the first few episodes. God, I can't wait to watch TNG as well. So many things I want to do. Um, but Mark Leonard does a great job of portraying a Vulcan as he should be. And his first scene with this really helps. The very first time I watched this, I remember thinking, God, what a jerk. But when I re watched this, especially this time with analysis mode on, it became so apparent what was happening. Sarek comes in and berates. Kirk berates him and is, is practically upset at him, as, as upset as a Vulcan can get. And the whole time he's acting as if, he, he's basically kicking him off as a dick and I'm like, oh god the, the Kai ling disease has spread from Starfleet and now it's affecting Vulcan. But no. He's being a Vulcan. His emotions he says this later on the thing. Where's the quote? Where's the quote? My logic is uncertain where my son is concerned. He is portraying someone who is just barely keeping his emotions intact. Just Barely keeping himself under control, he is upset. He is injured. He is emotional about this whole situation. So the way it rewatch that scene sometime. It's so apparent in 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 hindsight now that I've rewatched it with analysis mode on. He is just barely keeping himself restrained. Uh, another nice little to- note there his willingness to mind-weld with Kirk. Now, that may seem like a minor thing, but if you think about it, mind melds are of deeply personal things. They've always been said as such. It's not just a brain scan that you can just do. And... No, no, it's, it's an actual merger of the minds, a joint, mutual kind of a situation, which, under very, very horrible circumstances, has been allowed to be forced onto people. Uh, I'm going to be talking about this again when we get to Star Trek Six, actually. I mention this, though, because most Vulcans would never dare mind meld with someone because that is such a personal and and invocative thing it's something that is so vulnerable especially for a vulcan people who are very close-minded very tight-knit very personal about things you know i mentioned back in that voider episode uh year of hell part two tuvok's willingness to hug janeway spoke volumes about how much he cared about her I, i mentioned the same thing here because Sarek's willingness to mind meld with Kirk speaks volumes about how much he is affected by the situation, how how, how much he cares, and about how much he trusts Spock's trust in Kirk. I like that. I like that a lot, actually. Keep in mind, this is the same Sarek who never approved of Spock going into Starfleet. And you may be like, well, that didn't come out until Unification. No, that was actually in the original series, if you remember. Journey to Babel, they actually brought that up. That has been a part of the, the relationship between Sarek and Spock for, the, for as long as they both existed, as far as the canon goes. So this is someone who, despite his general distaste for Starfleet and militaries in general, has nevertheless been a staunch supporter of the Federation, and is someone who trusts his son's judgment when it comes to certain people. Picard being the other great one, by the way. It is such a damned shame they never did anything with that, because if you'll remember, Sarek actually mind melds with both Kirk and Picard across the course of Star Trek food for thought so repetition no no one other thing Uh, i like what they do with the katra in this one now the katra is a quote-unquote easy way to get spock back it could be argued that the spock we get back is effectively a clone of spock i'm not going to get into that debate because that goes into the metaphysical which is up to interpretation and debate on purpose this is what star trek 3 did really well the Katra is quoted as being, and I'm going to look at the direct quote here to make sure I don't mess it up, all that is not of the body. You want to call it the spirit, the soul, the sum of memories, the intellectual consciousness, the overall sentience or sapience, whatever term you want to use, however you want to perceive it, all that is not of the body, it hits It hits the whole gamut of a race, So you can decide what's actually happening. Is this basically a Spock 2, which has the memories of the original Spock? Is this the actual original essence of Spock? His soul, his spirit that has been transferred into a new body? It's up to you to decide. And I like that. I'm not even giving my opinion on it because that doesn't matter. What matters is you can make your own opinion on the matter, which is awesome. Repetition. So one of the things this film does badly as far as its construction is repetition. For those of you who don't know, a theme is something that is hard to explain, and it's actually harder to write than it should be. Um, Star Trek II had some very good themes that are recalled, is the word I want to use, throughout the course of the work, so that even though, you know, things that are being said in a different way with different connotations to emphasize their meaning... uh, I'll use the Highlander example. Um, There can be only one. It's not just a slogan. You don't just repeat it. It has so much meaning and and significance to the series and to the the characters. And it is used in many different ways across the works of Highlander. In this one, there is one successful bit of repetition, which I'll mention later. But right here, they basically repeat the scene from the end of Star Trek II. And then they watch a literal recording of the scene. This is what I call bad repetition. Bad repetition is usually just repeating. In other words, just reiterating what happened in the previous work without adding anything to it, without doing anything with it. There's no change in the way Kirk felt or the way Sarek is infected. There's no change in in the overall plot or or construction of it. The theme doesn't alter. Nothing is done other than the fact that we are basically rewatching part of Star Trek II. So, shrug, I suppose. So then we have the false dilemma. Why are we going to Genesis? Seriously, tell me why. Shadow, I know you're watching this. Tell me why we're going to Genesis. Now, before you start typing, don't say they're going to get Spock's body. They don't know Spock's body is there. Remember? Nobody expected Spock's body to be there. Why are they going to Genesis? Now we know why they're going to Genesis. It's to get Spock's body that they don't know exists. This is what I was talking about earlier. The, ep- the movie feels more like a series of events that don't make logical sense, constructed to service the plot rather than having a seamless molding of the two or having the setting service the plot. What we have here is a situation that literally makes no sense. Kirk and crew are willing to do this incredibly dangerous risky stunt to steal the Enterprise from the middle of space dock and then escape with it to go to Genesis for no reason. Logically speaking, look at the situation. They have Spock's catra. It's in McCoy. Okay, they need to break McCoy out. I'm with it. I'm with it. That makes perfect sense. They need to get get McCoy out. However, Sarek over there is the Vulcan ambassador who could say, I want McCoy transferred to me because Vulcan, Vulcan, Vulcan. And they could say, okay, because of course they could. They don't have to treat him like he's on the loony bin because he happens to be having some, and I quote, Vulcan mysticism going on with him. Then they take him to Vulcan, and that brings me to the whole Katra thing that I was going to talk about. Because, see, the whole point of this should have been getting McCoy to Vulcan. Remember, the Vulcans don't raise the dead. This was a one in a for grillion chance that only happened because of a series of long shots. Okay, They could only raise Spock from the dead because they happened to have a brand new body which happened to be regenerated from all the damage that it had taken and the radiation that it had taken because of the instance of Genesis which actually happened to reconstruct it and they actually managed to get him off Genesis before he aged even further and therefore got to the degenerative state and also happened to have no actual mind or soul or whatever in it so it was basically a blank body for them to put his Katra into it. And they happen to have the Katra on hand. That's how they resurrected him. This is the kind of thing that isn't done. No, the Katra is a way of Vulcans continuing on their people. This is a part of their culture. They pass on their Katra so that it can then be shared and disseminated into the rest of their civilization so that the memories and experiences of those people can live on. This is something they do so that in their own way, the people never actually die, even though they are dead. You follow? This is a cultural thing. So their motive should be get McCoy to Vulcan. But no, they're going to Genesis. Take note of this. One of the things that this film did really well is the hidden theme of loyalty. Now, I'm going to be talking about this more in a minute, but just notice that Kirk says the answer's no. So, yeah. And then Chekhov and Sulu, without even a single second of hesitation, say that they're with him. And Kirk is grateful for that. Again, without a single second of hesitation. Keep, keep note of that. So I like the bar scene. It's got some good atmosphere. Helps make it feel a little bit more science fiction-y and a little bit less... We're all humans with prosthetics. Yeah, I know. They were all still humanoids with prosthetics, but it still was a nice touch and still helped flesh out Star Trek to add the alien atmosphere to it. So I like that. DeForest Kelly's awesome. I was actually talking about this on my stream recently with regards to an episode called Spock's Brain. Yes, that one. I always feel like DeForest Kelly is probably... He's awesome. And and just about every time he portrays bones, he's awesome. I mentioned this back in Star Trek The Motion Picture. He totally sold the role, and he was one of the only people who really felt... I felt had genuine oomph behind his performance in star trek one he sells the bedraggled bones who is trying to wrestle with having part of spock's consciousness or katra whatever you want to call it in him beautifully and he does a great job of it really really sells the role i just wanted to give huge props to the man um he also has a great line which again is, is, and, this, and this is Harv Bennett in, in, his, in his prime here. He says, oh my god, that green-blooded person. He, he did this as revenge for all those arguments he lost. <laughs> now that is, of course, uh, still some ribbing on, on behalf of Bones. And he actually shares how he really feels to Spock later when he's looking at Spock's corpse, basically. But I really like that because it's just a nice little touch of Bones thinking that he won all those arguments that they had. So yeah, then Sulu's awesome, Starfleets are idiots, that leads us to Mr. Adventure. We still don't have a name for this guy, Uh, he is named in the novelization, I don't remember that name, so we're just going to keep calling him Mr. Adventure. If you're curious where that came from, Uhura actually calls him Mr. Adventure. Um, If you look in the wiki, uh, under Mr. Adventure, you'll find the guy. Why is he... Starfleet's an idiot. I'm just, I'm just going to rehash my point. He's a Starfleet idiot. Moving on. Nice little touch uh, from the original script and from the book. I know, I know, not canon, but again, I feel like this helps flesh it out in this case. Uhura immediately, after beaming them to the Enterprise, uh, literally ran, was chased to the Vulcan embassy and asked for asylum from Sarek himself, who granted it without hesitation. I mention that because you might be wondering how Uhura goes from being on Earth space dock to being on Vulcan with no repercussions, despite the fact that she took place in, in this whole thing, which could be considered a form of treason. Um, that's why. She went, sought asylum, and was effectively kicked out of Starfleet over the issue, although, of course, that's kind of hand-waved when Star Trek Four comes around. In a good way, though. That's not me blaming, but I just thought I'd point that out for anybody wondering what happened with Uhura. So let's go ahead and talk about this thing here. One of the other reasons that people tend to enjoy this whole sequence, and again, I mentioned this is one of my uh, favorite sequences in the movie, is because people like to root for the underdog again, Starfleet is being betrayed in all those horrible ways right they're obstructionist, they're bureaucratic they're dicks they're elitist, you know and so the underdogs in this case our crew who who have nothing and are working from nothing, you see kind of the parallels to Krug here, are just barely managed to just barely make this situation, so they manage to get away and show them, you know, that they can still, they can still do their damn jobs. They're still not ready to be put out to pasture, not ready to be taken out back and shot. And so it's really obvious why so many people enjoy this sequence, but I, the reason I really enjoy it most, and I've been hinting at this several times now, is the loyalty theme. It's the undercurrent theme throughout the course of this entire work. And I, again, I don't think it was done deliberately, or if it was, it was done beautifully subtly, because at no point is it obviously stamped in your face, like the other themes of, of returning life from death, or, you know, the fighting chance to live, all that fun stuff. Loyalty. Sulu and Chekhov, without question or hesitation, torpedo their careers for the chance to help their friends. Kirk destroys his venerable career as... Again, a fleet, an admiral of the fleet for the chance to help his, you know. All these people, without question or hesitation, do this sort of thing. This includes Scotty, this includes Uhura. All of these people are very loyal to each other to the point where the needs of the one outweighs the needs of the many. Because that's kind of how loyalty tends to work, really, if you think about it. Six people, ten people, fifty people, who all truly care about each other, will go to hell and back for one person. That is loyalty. We see that loyalty throughout this work in many weird ways. We see that Savik and David are also relatively loyal to each other, given what they've been through. There was also supposed to be a romantic uh, aspect of their characters that was basically dropped from the script, just an FYI. Um, That was also in Star Trek II, by the way, just briefly. Uh, and we see the loyalty of Krug and his, to his men and his men to him, which is also a strange situation. But we see it in his own lover, too, who is so loyal, she is willing to die without question or hesitation simply because she believes it is necessary for the betterment of, of, of their crew, of their, of their cause. Krug himself is also tremendously loyal to the Empire. This brings me to an interesting point, and I'm going to go ahead and talk about Krug and the Klingons for a moment, because this also has to do with the theme of loyalty. Remember that at this, in this movie, several times it's mentioned that Starfleet and the Federation, the Federation, i got to make the two distinct, Starfleet's the military or whatever, Federation's the organization. So the Federation is, in, is literally in lockdown with regards to peace and diplomacy meetings. Like, And we don't know who they're meeting with except Krug himself mentions that the Klingon leaders are also in similar talks and negotiations with the Federation. Given the timing, I don't think that's coincidental. It is worth noting that this is about the point in time in which the Organian Treaty was starting to fail, and the Organians themselves showed no signs of actually being interested in renewing it or actually trying to hesitate and, or, or stop the two powers from combating each other. Similarly, this is very similar to the real-life real, uh, Cold War scenario. For those of you not aware, the East and the West were in constant talks with each other, even though those talks basically didn't actually go anywhere. It was the kind of thing that helped keep that communication going and in many ways can be considered one of the reasons why the cold war never went hot was because there was always an attempt at communication going on and that's very valid here as well now imagine if in the cold war one side suddenly got the genesis device and the other side had nothing you see where i'm going with this right and so the klingons and the and the federation are both in very uh, extensive talks with each other so why is it krug is trying to get all this information Is it because he wants to destroy the federation no at no point does he portray that perspective now he thinks of genesis as a weapon of course he does it is a weapon it failed remember people keep telling him and keep saying over and over genesis is a failure they're wrong genesis was a failure to make worlds it is incredibly successful at destroying them and krug wanted that knowledge wanted that information wanted to have that access and knowledge of that weapon it's never stated outright but in one of the scenes where he's talking with his two seconds about what you know speak he says you know what what are your thoughts in this matter one of them says one of them says it's a weapon of great power the other one says a weapon to create worlds and krug says yes to create worlds in other words while he has no doubt that the peace-loving Federation would probably use it to create worlds, the fact that their enemy has a weapon that can destroy worlds was unconscionable. And there's this hidden current that he wants the secrets of Genesis not just to use it, but to be able to counter it. Just in case the Federation ever decide to use against us, or, or against the klingon excuse me, which again is very Cold War, isn't it? One side gets a lead, the other side scrambles to make up for it. Not because they want to counterattack, but because they want to make sure that they're not the weaker of the two parties. Makes sense? So Krug's loyalty to his to his empire. At no point in this entire movie, this fascinates me, at no point is Krug trying to gain personal power or prestige. In my opinion, I will add that. It is never mentioned if he is. It could be inferred that he is doing so. If he actually brought the Genesis device back to the Klingon council, there's no denying he'd probably get a council spot. His own house would probably be elevated as a result of this. If, if he chose it. But the way he portrays himself. And the way he talks with his crew. And the way he discusses the whole Genesis thing. I don't think that's what he's after. I think Krug is genuinely loyal. To the Empire. To the Klingon Empire. He is trying to further the cause of his people. Not his own. Which is, again fits in with that theme rather beautifully. Doesn't it? One final thought about Krug. This is someone who actually shows genuine grief at the loss of his men, and even his Targ. I only mention that because this may be the first time we've seen a Klingon actually upset at the loss of his people. I could be wrong about that. I don't really remember Day of the Dove that well. Feel free to correct me. But it's again interesting, and again ties in with that theme. I'll move on, I'll move on. Loyalty, awesome theme. They mention that Spock is directly linked to the planet. I've never actually bought that. I know they say it outright, but of course David said that in... (laughs) Um, Whether that's true or not is of course up to debate. But I've always felt that it's a matter of coincidence. And yet I cannot help but point out that the moment they get Spock off the planet, Spock stops aging. For no given reason. Even though the planet continues to age. Wrongly, I might add. So the implication is clearly that there is a connection between the two, but the question remains, why? Just food for thought. Feel free to uh, comment as you will. So, okay, now we're finally to the Grissom's destruction. Interesting concept here. Interesting setup of this situation. One thing I will give the construction of this plot, this script, it is very well constructed. It's hard been in a nutshell. He, he has a really great situation. He has balanced the scales so the two ships are equal, and he has balanced the situation so that things don't go worse, but they still go bad. What do I mean by that? Let's imagine if Captain Idiot had actually been a good captain. Let's say he gets down there and, oh my god, we found Spock, and we need to beam him up immediately and get him medical care. Okay, beam him up, let's go. What happens immediately after that? The, Bre- the bird of prey destroys the Grissom. Spock's dead, Savok's dead, David's dead, the end. Isn't that interesting how that's constructed? And again, th- this is kind of one of those weird things, but it is in service of the plot, because it helps set up the next situation. Krug, pissed off at this situation, is now facing a Constitution-class cruiser, which, in his own words, outguns him ten to one. And that's not an exaggeration, by the way. Again, a Constitution would curb stomp and Old Burrell. Especially when they got the drop on before the... Remember, they hit the the bird of prey as the bird of prey is uncloaking because they they, they tracked him. They were there. They were ready for him. So that's a hit without shields. Next hit probably would have absolutely destroyed the bird. The bird was helpless. But the playing field is leveled. Why? And again, makes so much perfect sense. They don't have a crew. I talked about this back in Star Trek 2. They don't have a crew. Scotty set up automation to deal with all the different tasks that have to be done on a ship. But otherwise, they can't actually pilot this ship with just six people. They can do basic maneuvers and that's it. And so the, o- 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 the automation actually overloads it having to do combat. And again, perfect sense make. I love it. Scotty himself says it. I never designed this with combat in mind. So they get off a shot, but then they can't do anything else. They can't raise shields. They, they literally cannot do anything. They can't even control their ship. They are helpless. The only thing they can do is functions they can access only from the bridge exclusively, which is funny because if you think about it, the first thing that comes to my mind when it comes to I'm stuck on my, my bridge and can only do one action is self-destruct. So one other real quick note here, just a side note. The Burrell, uh takes out the Oberth, the Grissom, in one shot. Why is that? Does that seem odd? Well, yes, it does, because even though a Burrell is stronger than an Oberth, I mean, one shot, really? But then I got to thinking about it, and being the ship geek that I am, and practically a fanboy of science fiction sh- ships in general, it actually makes perfect sense under two conditions. One, the Grissom's shields were down, which they were. They were in communication and thinking about beaming people up on the planet. They were not at yellow or gr- or red alert. They were, they were conditioned blue. And they were uh, basically taken by surprise. And the second condition is if that shot happened to hit something critical, like, oh, I don't know, the engine core or one of the warp nacelles. So yeah, I think one torpedo could take out an Oberth if it caught it with the shields down. That actually makes perfect sense. And I find that weird because most of the times... And this is very true in Star Wars as well. Most of the times, the way the ships act in the movies is Hollywoodized, for lack of a better term. Because nobody wants to see the actual battle, which would take like 10 minutes. They just want to see fire. But in everything else, the written works and the video games and the actual documentaries, and it doesn't work that way because of course it doesn't. That's silly, right? You know, that's one of the reasons why some people take umbrage with the Executor being taken down so easily, including me, in Return of the Jedi. Because, I mean, really? That's one of the reasons why they had to do an entire story arc explaining why the Executor was taken down. I talked about that back in my uh, Thrawn, Thrawn trilogy thing, and the Return of the Jedi thing. But I mention this because this is one of those rare exe- exceptions where it actually works the way I think it would, under the right conditions. So, props there. So, then Savic lectures David. Why does Savic lecture David. Because David used protomatter. Okay, makes sense. David was ethically and morally ambiguous and did something that was probably wrong in order to shortcut, in order to get results. Got it, I'm with that. What she says, however, is completely nonsensical and I feel like it was literally a line from the original script, the one about the Vulcan Civil War, that was left out. Think about this line, okay? Uh, I'm going to try and remember this as best as I can. It's something along the lines of, how many have paid the price for your impatience? How many, have, uh, how many people have died and what is yet to come? I feel like I'm missing a line there. But, you know, that's what she says, right? Now, that makes no sense in the context of this, mo- this movie because nothing has actually happened as a result of his impatience. Now, you could argue that and the semantics of that, but let's be honest. Who is the responsible one for all this crap that happened as of now? Khan. The evil man who tried to use his benevolent device for evil intention. And in fact, the Genesis device, if you remember, wasn't even supposed to be deployed yet. They were still testing it. We know the Genesis device works to some extent because of the Genesis cave. So maybe it would have actually worked if they'd had more time to test it and work on it. And then who's the second reason everything's going to hell? Krug, an evil man. You see where I'm going with this? So her taunt makes no sense unless you think about the Vulcan secession and the Civil War arc that was supposed to happen. If all of that had happened because of the sole fact that he had created Genesis, not the way it was used and not the way it was intended to be used, that actually makes a lot more sense. Thank God it, if you will. So then there's the Ponfar scene. This is an interesting scene because I've been very vocal about the fact that I don't really like romance or, and I really, really don't like sex in my fiction. This, this is just my preference, Okay. Uh, pax calls me a prude all the time for that's fine whatever but i mention this because i try to point out anytime i feel like either of these topics are done relatively well in a work of fiction now let's make this clear savic had sex with spock okay let's just flatten it that happened all right i think it was a it was well whether it was a good idea to add it or not is debatable because if they had ignored it it would have effectively been a continuity error. The Ponfar is something that was a hugely important aspect of, of, of Vulcan culture. In fact, for those of you who don't remember, the Ponfar was the first look we ever had at Vulcan culture. All the way back in a time. That was the first time we actually examined the Vulcan culture, the Vulcan society. Up, anything before that was Spock. Not the Vulcan people. So it's pretty much arguably the the linchpin the the cornerstone of vulcan society and that makes a lot of sense because when you think about it thematically having total control over yourself yet still having powerful emotions under that and constantly maintaining discipline and using well uh uh, logic out accepted outlets of that particular excess at certain times, which is born into us to the point where it's actually a biological imperative after generations of repeated use of this kind of thing and cultural uh, s- uh, stigma as well as pressure. It makes sense, right? It makes sense for that to be the cornerstone of Vulcan society, at least for me. I feel free really to disagree. So if they had completely skipped over it, the question would be asked by many Trek fans, including me, what about the Ponfar for the aging body of Spock? Keep in mind, this is just a body, an animal, for all intents and purposes. They're, they're very clear about the fact that this Spock is just an animal. Now, if you don't understand what I mean by that, no intellect, no soul, no spirit, no capacity, no Katrin, no nothing, whatever it is you want to call it, doesn't matter. They're adamantly clear about the fact that this is a beast, something that lacks the ability to think, reason, otherwise have sentient sapience, or anything of that fashion. So, in other words, something that is completely at the whims of his own biology as Spock himself put it back in Amok Time. So they handle it very well. They don't show anything. Savik approaches the situation and says, okay, you know, she will mate with him. Of course she will. It is logical to do so. I know that sounds horrible, at least to me. It sounds horrible, I'll admit it. But it is fully logical. It's one of those situations, you know, if I was with a woman... Who I did not have any romantic intentions whatsoever, and if I did not have sex with her, she would die. Yeah, I probably would go ahead and do so. I'd hate it. I'd hate myself for it. But to save her life? Fine. Done. It is logical, even if it is unpleasant. But I don't think it was unpleasant for Savik, and I don't mean that as a joke. This is a woman who has always been portrayed as one of the most aspiring students of Spock. An elderly man, of course, older than she is, but someone who has always approached her with candor and wisdom. Someone she obviously had a decent amount of rapport with, uh, based on her but their interactions in Star Trek too. Someone she was willing to weep over the loss of openly in public. Again, Vulcan. <laughs> a Vulcan crying in public. That's how close their connection was. So it is logical to me that she would harbor some idealized version of him in her mind, whether it is romantic or not. So I cannot say that she would not be interested in having that kind of connection with him, which also ties into the other thing. I'm just going to say it now. Um, this will come up again in Star Trek Four, and I'll talk about this more there. So I'm only going to mention it briefly here. Savik was supposed to get pregnant here. It is arguable that she did get pregnant here, even though it's never mentioned ever again, because the way it was directed and the way it was shot, she did get pregnant. In here and in Star Trek IV, the actress was given the direction, you are carrying his child. Interesting food for thought, and something that was intended to continue and have a a further developing theme, especially in the next movie, after four. but... Again, that's one of those things that, whether that's creepy or not, is going to depend on the opinion. But my reasoning here being that connection she wanted with him not necessarily being that of a romantic one, but that of a shared mutual partnership of being parents of this new being. Which is not necessarily a romantic connection, if you understand what I mean by that. Just food for thought. Now... The fact that the pregnancy was dropped, effectively, is a good thing, in my opinion. And the reason why is very blunt, Star Trek IV. I'll talk about it there. Feel free to disagree with me now, before I've actually given my argument. <laughs> um, let's move on to the... A couple of more things here. I like the fact that the Enterprise wasn't able to raise shields when the Burrell counter the when the bird counterattacked. I like that because, not only does it make sense for the automation thing earlier, but, as I've said before shields are basically what keeps your ship up, otherwise you just cut your hull, and most ships are not actually built with armor, just, you know, the design to to function in space. And so the idea that they they were able to get in a counterattack, even just one, and the Enterprise's shields were down, yeah, that was probably a pretty clear blow. It also helps to flesh out why Krug was willing to try to talk Kirk down rather than try to do anything else that was available to him, because, hmm, you know, instincts, thinking, cunning, etc., the Imperfect Cloak is something else I want to mention here. The cloaking device was mentioned all the way back in uh, uh, Balance of Terror. Great episode, by the way. Highly recommend it. And it was always mentioned as being an imperfect cloak. Like, they had the ability to detect it barely, but only under certain circumstances and only if they knew what they were doing. And usually they couldn't do it first. They had to, like, get something to track them on initially. I mention that because the idea of the Imperfect Cloak will be true across all of Star Trek, Until Nemesis. So I just want you to keep that in your mind. Across all of Star Trek, TNG, DS9, Voyager, the movies. Cloaks are not perfect. Okay, there's always some way to get around them or through them with enough time and enough ingenuity and equipment. Until Nemesis, when the Mary Sue ship shows up. So just keep that way in the back of your mind for when we get to Nemesis. Um, So, (sighs) we're almost done with my notes because we're pretty much at the end of the movie here. I mentioned that there are four significant flaws with this movie, in my opinion. That's not even counting the television episode episodic feel to it. One was the Starfleet being the bad guys thing. The fourth, I'll be talking about Dead Last. It's my very last note. The next two come right here. The very next things we're going to talk about. Spoiler alert, just in the off chance. The death of David Marcus, Kirk's son, and the death of the Enterprise. Keep in mind, this is the Enterprise. The first one, not Enterprise-A. We'll be seeing that one in 4. This is the Enterprise. And it is destroyed over Genesis. They don't even get to salvage the wreck because it hurtles into the planet, which then hurtles into the sun, which I'll talk about in a minute. Both of these steps make sense from a structural perspective. But the, well, okay. On paper, making a movie in which the Enterprise died and David dies, okay. But the way they put it into the structure of the script is just wrong. Let me talk about this for a bit here. David's death has zero significance on the script, on the plot, on the setting, of the world, on anything other than Kirk himself. And even that, if it were not for Nimoy and Shatner, who both got together and collaborated on this scene to change the way the original script was, and for this is the first time I feel like the change of the script was a good thing, there would be literally no impact. But instead, Shatner was like, no, 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 this is my son that I just reunited with, literally months ago for the first time in his life and he just died there needs to be an impact and nimoy agreed with him so they did a couple of things there's a scene where kirk literally stumbles it's actually the first scene kirk has ever stumbled in in this manner ever in the history of star trek the impact of it nails him right across the face and and again shatner and nimoy both collaborated on getting just getting the impact of this across And there's no music. Now, I've talked a lot about the no music concept. For those of you who did not watch my Kingdom Hearts uh, lore run, for example, no music, an absence of music in any work, should be done as a deliberate choice, as an emphasis of what's going on in the thing. It should be used as a tool, just like music is. But if you overuse it, I'm looking at you, Kingdom Hearts, then it just gets irritating or awkward or uh, what the hell, you know? But when no music is done properly, we get the, the, the sh- much stronger impact of the scene. No music is played when David Marcus dies. No music is played when Kirk reacts to it. And it is perfectly exactly what it should be. It doesn't start up until Kirk has finally managed to, to come up with the plan to deal with the situation. There is a huge chunk of this movie. It's only a few minutes, but whatever. Where there is just no music as they're, as, as, as they're reeling from this. And Shatner and Nimoy really get the impact of that across. But again, what impact does David's death have on the plot? None. Zero. Zip. It does nothing to the story. Then the Enterprise dies. What impact does the Enterprise's death have on the story? I know this sounds callous, but bear with me. What impact does it have? Well, they need another way off the planet. Okay. I'm waiting. (laughs) Now, you could argue that the Enterprise's death... Uh, saved the lives of his crew by taking out the by basically making the bringing the Klingons down to their level, even further to the point where they had I think at that point three Klingons left at all. Debatable. But my point is the Enterprise's destruction was tacked on. And now this is true. The Enterprise's destruction was not in the original script. I mentioned that it was tacked in and left in. Um, For reasons that are ambiguous at best, we only have a few details on that. I wasn't able to find anything concrete, so I'm not going to share anything. And yet, the biggest problem with the destruction of the Enterprise and the death of David is that neither one of these things actually flows with the overall theme and structure of this film. The intended theme of this film was life from death. It's debatable how well it pulls off that theme, because in my opinion, there's only two scenes that pull off that theme at all. One is the ending, and the other is that scene when they're on the cliff, which, don't mistake me, when they're on the cliff watching the Enterprise fall to its death, that's a good scene. And McCoy's line is brilliant. You did what you've always done, turn death into a fighting chance to live. That's a great scene. But those are the only two scenes, in my opinion, in the whole work that really have the impetus of the intended theme. Now, the theme I've put forward, the theme of loyalty, that has nothing to do with the destruction of the Enterprise, or the death of David. Neither of these things flow organically you I'm I gotta stress this okay anybody who hasn't watched my stuff before I'm not anti uh change okay in fact I'm actually very pro change but I'm very pro change if you do it intelligently carefully smartly carefully etc okay you don't just change stuff for the sake of changing stuff and you don't just change stuff consistently both of these things invariably lead to ruin when it comes to fiction you change stuff where it grows organically. That was, Nicholas Meyer himself said that back in Star Trek II. You can kill Spock. You just have to make sure it grows organically and naturally from the theme and work of the piece so that nobody sees it coming until it's already on you. The Enterprise is, li- the Enterprise's destruction is literally contradictory to the previous tone and approach of the film. Remember I mentioned that, er- that escape scene. From stardock and and the plucky old ship and the plucky old crew and we're not ready to be put out of pasture and we're not you know we can still do this we're the underdog yeah root for the underdog and then the underdog burns to death (laughs) and that's what happens that is not that's that's bad juxtaposition i'm just gonna say it that is bad juxtaposition that is not how you do that kind of contrast okay it does not have anything to do with the way the, the film works, with the way the film grows, with the themes of the film, with the themes of the characters, it does nothing. It is a terrible, horrible misstep. And it's no surprise, too, because it's also one of those things that just caught audiences across the face when this came out. The death of David Marcus was obviously a very powerful scene. But the death of the Enterprise, I, you should have seen the audience in the theater when this came out. It just went quiet. Nobody said anything. And even when people were getting out, people were muttering under their breath. I can't believe they destroyed the Enterprise, you know? They were in shock of it. Now, you might be like, aha, that's what the purpose of, shock value. Yeah, but nobody liked it. Shock value is there to get you and like, oh my god, and then do something else with it, you know, make that as, oh god, what can happen next? Or maybe this is really the impact of the situation. You know, you do shock value, you don't just shock to shock value. That's That's what Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3 did. Okay? You do shock value to get across a point or to emphasize of a form of storytelling like Call of Duty Modern Warfare 4. Uh, it's Call of Duty 4, Mo- Modern Warfare 1. Well, like Modern Warfare 1 did. That's what you do, okay? You do it as part of the work, not just, oh, and by the way, pa! And just <laughs> belting someone across the chest in the middle of a thing. Haha, <laughs> you weren't expecting that, were you? You're shocked. Submission accomplished. No, guys, no. Just because I've been asked, how would I do this if I had to destroy the Enterprise? If I had to? That's a tough one, because I stand firm in my statement that the Enterprise's destruction is contrary to everything in this film. But if I had to do it, I would have had the Enterprise successfully manage to take down the Burrell, get down to the planet, much earlier in the film, by the way. I would literally eject most of the early stuff in the film. Have the Enterprise get to the Genesis planet, have them get down... And I'm trying to think how to express this because I'd really need to work this. But the overall idea here is that the Enterprise herself, the ship, would demonstrate that loyalty, obviously being an object, but it would unconsciously evoke that concept of loyalty in the fact that the Enterprise would literally be burning out its circuits in order to maintain the ship in orbit of a planet that's literally disintegrating. I mean, think about what that's doing to the gravity uh, in in the area, you know? And how badly that's screwing. And keep in mind, again, this is a planet that's spiraling into its sun, so that's a pro- planet problem too. And the Enterprise is literally burning itself out, gets them up, and then as they're trying to escape, they literally can't. And finally, they they use literally the last bits of power to push, you know, to, to beam or up, uh, to beam them... No, no, no. They beam away. They beam away. Um... And they've got either got remote control of the ship or they've got someone staying behind on the ship. One of the two. And they're on the Borel now, still damaged. And the Borel doesn't quite have the power to escape on its own. And then whoever's on the ship or the remote control literally uses the very last bits of energy that is left in the damaged, non-crewed Enterprise to literally push the Borel out of the gravity well to the point where it can get away and escape. And then they just watch the Enterprise sink back into the star. That's how I would do it. And that's just something I came up with right now. I, I make it a point, whenever I do those, I come up with things, to not pre-work those, because that's kind of cheating. You know, if I sit down and work it, I can come up with something way better. But feel free to tell me how terrible my ideas are. But at least that would have had that overall theme and impetus of not only loyalty, but life from death. Both of those themes would have been present in that. <sighs> Whatever. Moving on. Um, wow, I've got, like, new lo- notes left. Okay, so imagine... um. There were some serious budget issues by the end of this film, for those of you not aware. The final battle on Genesis Planet was supposed to be, like, way more than it was, and it wasn't. Half the props literally didn't work. They had some mechanisms, one of which only worked once. It, it was a mess. Um, I also mentioned the planet falling into the sun. This is one of those weird things. For those of you who don't know, Genesis Planet was falling into its sun. Okay, I'm with it, um you might wonder where I'm getting that from. Well, if you notice, the very last shot of the planet is the planet getting awfully close to that sun, way closer than it was before. This was actually something that, again, was in the original script and was chopped out at several points in time. Remember that scene where they look and the sun is setting and everything's just getting weird and there's this weird kind of atmosphere that was that scene is in was in there to try and emphasize the fact that the planet is basically spiraling which is increasing the rate of the day night cycle and there's supposed to be some lines to explain this which was just to help add to this atmosphere and dread of it instead it's just this weird scene which doesn't really do anything um unless you know this of course and so what actually happens and and this is technically in canon because again it was in the movie it's just only two scenes of it were in the movie is the planet does finally end up spiraling into the sun that's why i kept mentioning that Uh, I mentioned bad repetition and good repetition. There is an instance of good repetition in this movie, and it's when McCoy is hovering over the body of Spock, and he says, you put this damn thing in me, remember? Remember? This is good repetition. Take note, writers. It's a line that flows naturally in dialogue and calls back to the old line, but isn't just repeating it. It adds to it. It does something with it. And again, it flows naturally. It is him trying to get... It is Kim trying to get Spock to remember as Spock got him to remember. You see how this works. So, great scene with, between McCoy and Spock's body uh, towards the end. So... Uh, I guess I only have the one note left. Yeah. So, the final question we are left with, and a lot of people in the audience were literally holding their breaths uh, when this was happening, is, is this our Spock? Now, I mentioned this is debatable. This is something you can deliberate on your own, and and whether it's true or not is up to your interpretation. Whether it's effectively a clone, same souls, whatever, doesn't matter. It's up to your interpretation. But we weren't even certain if that was going to be a Spock who who was Spock in some manner, in some facet or another, if it was going to be Spock or not. It was therefore very gratifying when he did that scene and he turns and he... uh, he says, you know, I, I, he says the lines from Star Trek 2. And the rest of the crew just kind of uh, gather around him, and there's just general warmth in the scene, and I like that. And I guess that's really the last thing I have to say. Now I thought I had one other thing to talk about right at the end. I don't remember what it was. I suppose it doesn't matter, because next we're going to talk about Star Trek 4. Which is a weird movie to talk about, trust me. It's one of those movies that's like, okay, I'm going to tell you something incredibly stupid and you're going to love it. That, that's Star Trek IV in a nutshell. <sighs> Whatever. I will see you guys next time. Have a good one.